This passage, 2 Corinthians 5, is one of my favorite passages. I've, I don't think I've ever spoke on this passage before, but I loved it. I memorized it. I've taught it to my children. It's just a really powerful passage, and I'm really excited to speak on this this morning because it touched my soul, and I'm praying it touches yours as well. Were you ever compelled by a powerful force to do something you otherwise would not do? Think about it. Did something ever compel you to do something you otherwise wouldn't do that doesn't really line up with your character? Well, I'll give you a few examples from my own life, okay? I'll give you a couple small examples. I don't like traffic. Anyone else really don't like traffic? Now, I have two options when I come to work and come back from work. I can take either Interstate 81 or I can take the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Which one do you think I take? 81. No. 81 is always traffic, especially the time that I leave. So I take the Turnpike, and it costs a little bit of money, and I think it's worth it because it keeps my sanity. Aren't you glad you have a sane pastor? <laughs> so I hate traffic that much. I will take the Turnpike no matter what, even if I... One, one day I missed it. I was like just fiddling with the radio or something, and I missed it. And the normal person will go, oh, I'll just take 81 then. No, I turned around. <laughs> turned around, got back on, and then got back on the turnpike. That's how much I hate traffic. I love coffee. Any coffee lovers out there? I know you guys love coffee, right? So when the deacon sat down with me and said, hey, we're looking for a pastor. We think you'd be a good fit. What do you think? And I said, I don't know, guys. I don't know. And they said, there's a Dunkin' Donuts across the street. And I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> And so that's why I'm your pastor today. It's because there's a Dunkin' Donuts across the street, so we can never leave. I'm teasing a little bit. I don't like heat. I told you I'm a real big fan of fall and cool weather. I don't like heat. And so Janine and I, we've moved several times in our life, maybe close to 10. I don't know why we keep moving. But um, we're ch the government's chasing us or something. But we keep moving, and every time we move, we're looking at a house, and I don't know what would be in the top three of your list for things that you would look for in a house, you know? Two-car garage, you know, big, nice, open concept. What do you think, Janine? What would be on the top three? Place for children to be crazy? Central air. Central air is one of the first things I ask about. And she's like, really? Central air? It's like, that's the first thing I want to know. Does it have central air? I don't have central air now, so I'm, I'm a little bit more compliant than it sounds. But I love air conditioning. I love being cool. I also love kids. I love children. As you can't tell, I really love kids. And so I'm willing, I'm willing to embrace a lifestyle of people calling us freaks. And I think one guy called me Jim Bob Duggar. And uh, that's okay with me because I love kids. I love a big family. I always wanted a big family. See, you do things in life, right, that you're compelled to do because something means something to you. Well, there's, there's another time in my life where I've been compelled to do something. And it was the first time I fell in love. And her name was, uh, no, I'm just teasing. Janine was the first time that I fell in love. And when I met Janine, I had dated, I told you, I had dated a few times, you know, my college years and things like that. I was never that into it. I, was, I didn't really care if it worked out or didn't work out because I, I wasn't in love. And so when I met Janine, something changed in me, something clicked, and I started to become a different person than I was before. And I started to date Janine, and suddenly I, I was focused on this relationship. I was zoomed in. I was like, I, was, I thought this was important. I wanted to give time and energy and things like that to it. And I had never thought of that before. When a girl dumped me in the past, it was always like, whatever, more fish in the sea, right? But then I met Janine and it was completely the opposite. I was focused, I was zoomed in, I was determined to make this happen. And that was never my lifestyle at all. I was getting creative with dates and things like that. I wanted it to be fun and creative. I got jealous. There were a couple other guys hanging around Janine and I'd be like, yo, broski, no, I didn't do that. 
But I, I did find myself getting jealous and things like that. I had never felt jealousy before. Seriously, I had never felt jealousy before. I didn't care. And now I cared. Uh, I started to get disciplined with money. I, got, I, I was a better dresser. I started caring about how I dressed. I was kinder. I was more flexible socially. I started liking cats because Janine liked cats and wanted a cat, and so I got a cat, and I was a cat guy all of a sudden. Uh, I started chewing with my mouth closed. I stopped waxing my eyebrows. No, I, I never waxed my eyebrows. But those things don't, Janine, Janine doesn't like those two things. I started watching chick flicks. I started memorizing chick flicks without knowing it, Pride and Prejudice. I started, to, when we got married, we made a budget for our family, and one of the lines of budget was ice cream, because Janine likes ice cream. Some of these are jokes, but I, what I'm basically telling you is that I started to do things and act in a certain way because I was compelled by my love for Janine and her love for me. And we're going to look at something like that today. Is we're going to call this lesson today Compelling Love, Compelling Love from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15. If you're there, join me, and you can look on the screen as well. Paul, writing, the Apostle Paul, says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We have a really simple outline today, okay? A really simple outline, three things we want to look at. Number one is, does the love of Christ compel you? Does his love compel you? Number two is, we all have died. We all have died. That's the second thing we're going to look at. And number three is, are you living for him? Does the love of Christ compel you? We all have died, and are you living for him? Because we get those things right from the text. That's exactly what Paul says. So number one, does the love of Christ compel you? Or we can use the word control. I used a simple illustration. Had Come on up here, buddy. Typically, I like to use my son for illustrations. This one's really simple and really dumb, but it's, it's hopefully going to stick in your mind for something that is kind of talking about. You guys know what the word control means, right? Had we did this at home, so we've had, we've had time to practice. Had I want you to take my hand, and I want you to control my hand, okay? Well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to give everybody a thumbs up with my hand. All right? You guys probably can't see that. Uh, I want you to wave at Grace. She waved back. Okay, I want you to high-five my other hand. Good job. Sit down. Okay. I told you. Really simple. Really, really dumb illustration. Thank you, Haddon. Haddon did a great job. He was controlling my hand. And the, and the first question we want to look at today is, does the love of Christ control you? Does it control you? Because that's what Paul says. He says, as a statement of fact, for the love of Christ controls us. Think about some compelling motivators people use in their life. Okay, what are some motivating things that people have in their life? The general person that motivates them to do things and make decisions. I thought of 10, and I'm sure there are more than this. Number one, people are compelled to be right. People want to be correct. And that's an honorable thing, to be right and to be correct. People want to know that the decisions they're making are the right decisions. The line of thinking that they have is the proper line of thinking. So they're motivated to learn so that they can be right and correct in what they do. Number two, to be rich or successful. People are motivated all the time by that. To be rich and successful, therefore they go to work, therefore they discipline themselves, they go to school, they strive for success, they try to climb the ladder because it's a compelling motivator to be rich and to be successful. Number three, to be comfortable. To be comfortable. People love to put comfortable things around them because they simply want to be comfortable, right? I told you, I don't like heat. I want to be around things that make me cool. And so, because it's a comfortable thing. It makes me comfortable. And people are motivated by the 
fact of wanting comfort in their life. Number four is to be healthy or to live long. To be healthy and to live long. Fitness right now is really big. If you watch TV at all, you'll see a thousand commercials for fitness, for fitness uh, instruments and things like that. And you've heard the old adage, no pain, no gain. Because people want to be healthy. They want to live long upon the earth, don't they? They want a long, good life. And, and part of that long, good life is being fit and being healthy. So that motivates them to get in the gym and discipline themselves and run a lot and eat weird things and get up early. Uh, number five is to be safe and secure. To be safe and secure, right? We all love safety and security. We have insurance and things like that. Things that allow us security and safety so that no matter what, we're not going to be caught without. People are motivated all the time by safety and security. Or maybe not taking risk. I'm not a risk taker because I like to be safe and secure. Here's another one. To be liked and praised. To be liked and praised is a really big motivator. In fact, I want you to check, if you're on social media, check the last 10 posts that you posted and see how many are motivated by the fact that you just wanted someone to like what you posted. Someone to praise you, someone to say good job or well done. I mean, think about that. That's a, that's a compelling motivator is to be liked and praised, someone to pat you on the back. That's really big today. To have fun and to feel good is the next one. To have fun, to feel good. You've heard the old song, everybody's working for the weekend, right? I've worked at jobs where they they literally did that. They worked so that they go out and party on the weekend so they could feel good. They, was, they were motivated to come to work to discipline themselves so that they might feel good in life. Here's another one, to be remembered. To be remembered, to leave a legacy. People are motivated all the time to be remembered, to not be forgotten. I want someone to remember my life, remember what I did. I want to leave a legacy upon this earth. That's really big in the sports world. They don't want to just play and play well. They want to be remembered. Michael Jordan, right? I mean, when I was growing up, Michael Jordan was everything. And now it's like, well, Kobe, LeBron James. And Michael Jordan's got to kind of squeeze back in the limelight because he wants to be remembered. And that's, that's the thing that everybody's motivated by. Two more. This is another honorable one, to take care of loved ones. We are motivated all the time to take care of those that are special to us. Parents, children, sisters, friends. We are motivated to take care of those whom we love. And so we do things based on the motivation to love others. And the last one I thought of is to make memories. To make memories. Capture life. Savor life. Do things that are fun and capture those memories and have those memories and look back on those memories. When I was little, we used to, you guys have a, one of those camcorders growing up? Now it's like everything's like a one-minute clip or a 40-second clip. Back in the day, we just rolled tape. And whatever you did for the next four hours was on camera. <laughs> so when we go back to watch those, it's like, ooh, that's rough. I think we literally have one of us traveling in the car and the camera's just rolling in the Midwest. Yeah, that's not fantastic footage. Um, but we like to make memories, right? And those, are, those are 10 compelling motivators that I found, or that I thought of, that people are motivated all the time. People this very day are using those motivations. Do you know that? To make decisions. Those motivations are helping people today make decisions for their life. Well, for the Christian, we have one. One primary compelling force that motivates us beyond every single motivation. According to Paul, according to Scripture, it is the love Jesus has for us. The love that Jesus has for us is the one primary compelling force for all Christians. 
We believe he loves us, don't we? We believe that Jesus loves us. We've seen it. We've felt it. We've sensed it. We've seen it in scripture. Our lives have been touched by the love of Christ, so we believe it, but we can't fathom it. We believe it, but we can't fathom it. I mean, why? Why would he love me? Why would Jesus love me? Who am I? I know what I've been. I know what I've done. Why would Jesus love me, or how could Jesus love me? At age 26... I was blown away by the fact that Jesus could still love me because I knew what I was, I knew what I had done, I knew what I deserved, and it wasn't love. And I was floored, I was blown away by the fact that Jesus could love me. And that force was so compelling in my life to start changing and start being different than I was before. It was so powerful. When we first grasp the truth that Jesus loves us, we're overwhelmed by it. Remember the first time you trusted in Jesus Christ. Wasn't there a fact of overwhelming love and, and, and power in your soul to say, man, I can't believe that is true. I can't believe this is real, but I believe it. The Bible clearly states it. John three sixteen. God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. That's what it says. He loved us that much. Jesus loved us enough to endure the horrible sufferings of the cross for sins he never committed. Is that love, guys? That's the epitome of love. How do we measure a love that deep? How do we measure it? Can, can anything measure a love that deep? Can anything measure Christ's love? Can we explore his love long enough that we see one side of it where it begins or where it ends? Can we? Can we explore Jesus' love long enough and zoom out far enough to get a true glimpse, to get the entire picture of his love for me? Can we? Can we measure the love of Christ? And the answer is very clearly we cannot. We cannot measure the love of Christ. As soon as we begin exploring his love, we get lost in it because it's too vast. I like those documentaries or those movies where people get lost at sea. I know that sounds weird, but those are interesting to me when they get lost at sea. And if you've ever seen one of those, they get lost at sea. And what happens is they'll send out a search party. Someone will notice they're missing or they're not there. And then they'll go send out a search party. And they'll look in the exact area where they were or where their boat went down or whatever. And typically they don't find them. And you know why that is? The ocean is too vast. It's too big. It's too big of an area for such a small person to be found. Even though they're looking in the exact area they believe they were, they can't find them because the ocean is too vast. That's a picture for the love of God. It's too big. It's too broad. It's too vast. You get lost in it. See, according to Scripture, the Son of God, whose Colossians says, everything exists by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything that exists, exists for him. He's the very one that came to this earth to die for me. How can it be? How can it be? I don't know love like that. I don't know love like that anywhere else. I can't find it. Can you? Can you find love like that anywhere else that the Son of God, whom everything exists for, is the one who hung on a cross for you? I can measure the love of other people, and so can you. You can measure. You can see where it starts. Sometimes you can see where it ends, unfortunately. So you've been to the ends of people's love. But I've never seen where Christ's love starts, and I've never seen where it ends, and I'm glad to say that I never will. I cannot begin to fully know the love Jesus has for me or what caused Jesus to be mocked, to be blasphemed, to be struck in the face, to be spit upon, and to be crucified for sins that I committed for sins that I committed. And he stayed silent through the entire process. Why? Because that's why he came. 
He came to die for me. He came to die for you. That's why he came. So that's why he endured it. Maybe you've heard the old hymn by Charles Wesley. I think I've quoted this before. It's called, And Can It Be? And I just want to read one stanza of it. It says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Man, amen. Amen to that. Has his love compelled you yet? Has his love compelled you yet? Have you been captivated by the love Jesus has for you? See, all those who have been saved and been touched by his immense love have been compelled to some degree to do something they otherwise would not. It's the singular reason we have hope today, is it not? The love of Christ is the singular reason we have any hope at all today. In fact, can you consider where you would be without that love? Where would you be today if he didn't love you? What would you be doing and where would you be headed? Can you find another to compare with the love of Jesus Christ? Can you duplicate it? Can you replicate it? If you lose it, can you find it again in someone else? And if not, then you, just like me, should be compelled by that immense, powerful, and great love that he has for us. And that's what Paul is saying. Just like that illustration I showed you with my son, does that love control you? Does it? Does it control your actions? Does it compel you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't do? Is it the powerful force in your life that is causing you to live differently than you used to live, differently than the world does? That's number one. Have you been compelled by his love? Number two, we all have died. We all have died. It says right there in the passage, right in the middle, it says we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. What does that mean exactly? It's a little difficult to know exactly what Paul meant by that. One has died for all and therefore all have died. I think he could mean one of two things. Okay, number one is that you and I were dead in our sins. According to Ephesians 2 and many other passages in Scripture, we were dead in our sins. We were awaiting eternal death because of those sins. Death was our destiny. Death was our reality. So Paul could just be saying that. We were dead in our sins. We all had died because of our sins. Or number two, he could be saying when Jesus died, he died the death that we all deserve to die. Jesus died your death. On the cross, he died the death that I deserve, the death that you deserve. Jesus died that for us. And it could be both. It's probably both, because both are right according to Scripture. Before Jesus Christ came and saved us, we weren't just badly off, guys. Okay, We weren't just a little bad. According to what TGD just read, we were sinners. We didn't need a spiritual tweaking, a modification. Before Christ came and saved us, we were dead in our sins. I'm going to read the first part of Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul again speaking, he said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Man, think about that. You were dead in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and listen to this, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
We weren't badly off. We weren't in need of a spiritual tweaking. We were dead. When Christ found us, he discovered a bunch of dead souls. Dead. If you have your Bibles, go back to Ezekiel 37. It's in the Old Testament. It's, it's sort of near the end by Daniel. Go to Ezekiel 37. Part of it, I think, is going to be on the screen. And I think this is a passage we looked at several weeks ago, but it's called the Valley of Dry Bones. And I just want to read you a, a little bit of this passage to help you get a glimpse of what Jesus found when he came to this earth. Okay, the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel 37. We're going to read the first three verses. We're going to pause, and then we're going to come back to Ezekiel 37, okay? Listen to the first three verses of Ezekiel 37. The prophet Ezekiel now is speaking, okay? And this is what he says. Ezekiel 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, among them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And what a strange question. Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord, you know. Or maybe the better way to understand it is, O oh Lord, only you know. Those are the first three verses of Ezekiel 37, and we will get back to that here in a minute. But that's, that's a picture of what Christ found when he came to this earth. He found a valley of dry bones, dead souls. Sin had killed us. We were all under the power of eternal death. We were all under the slavery of the devil, all of us. We were as hopeless and dead as anyone could ever be. Dead for a long, long time. Now, you can help a sick person, right? Even a very sick person can recover. But we were dead. Dead. The hope train had long passed, okay? It was time to forget about us. It was time to come up with a new plan. It was time to figure something else out because there was no life in us at all. We were dead. What is the Lord going to do with dead people? With a valley of bones. What are you to do? But it says in Matthew, with God, all things are possible. Amen? With God, all things are possible. God came up with a plan to help dead people. Think about that. Your God came up with a plan to help dead people. Now, is that a mighty God? Is that a mighty God who can give hope to the dead? See, the thing that was keeping us dead was our sinfulness and the power of the devil. That's what was keeping us dead. What if God could remove those? What if he could remove them both? We might live again if he could find a way to release us of the chains of sin and death, right? And God had a plan to do this. But this plan was going to be incredibly costly to God. Very, very costly. I don't know what you would spend for the life of a loved one. Probably a lot, right? God had to spend the most valuable thing that anyone could ever spend. It was going to demand a death greater than all the other deaths combined. And the death was going to have to be someone of supreme value to make up for the sins that God's people had committed. Someone of supreme value was going to have to die. And the sacrifice is going to have to be Jesus. God's only begotten son was going to have to die if he was going to release us from the chains of sin and death. If Jesus was willing to give up his life, then God's people could regain their life. 
If Jesus was willing to pay for our sins, then we wouldn't be in sinful debt any longer. If Jesus would die, there was no reason for you and I to stay dead. Yes, it was a costly plan, but it was also a plan of incredible glory. Incredible glory. If God pulled this plan off, his name was going to be exalted forever by those previously dead people. Forever. The songs would never end. The praise would never cease. Those previously dead people who understood that and were compelled by that would never stop praising God. It was a plan of immense glory. And I told you, this plan, although it was costly beyond calculation, I can't calculate what it was to give up the only begotten Son of God. But God went through with the plan, and thankfully, so did Jesus. They both said yes to Jesus dying on the cross so that you and I might be freed from the chains of sin and death. And now if you're in Ezekiel 37, let's finish the passage. Ezekiel 37, I'll pick up the reading starting in verse 3. And I said, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these dry bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe, excuse me, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Wow. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Behold the power of your God. He has a plan for dead people. He has the power and the love to cause dead people to live once again. Where we started reading Ephesians 2. Let's finish that passage now. Ephesians 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there quickly. This is a passage you're probably more familiar with. But the first three verses are a little depressing of Ephesians 2. If that's where it ended, it would be pretty depressing. Let's now read verses 1 through 7. Let's get the entire picture. Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. 
but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his, of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And amen. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. A death has occurred. The death of Jesus. It's a tragic death, but it's a sacrifice full of glory. Jesus died, guys, so that our death would not be the end of our stories. Aren't you thankful for his sacrifice? Because that sacrifice is the only reason, the only singular reason you're alive today. His death for you and for me. And thankfully, three days after Jesus died, just like the valley of dead, dry bones in Ezekiel 37, life came back into Jesus. You see, death can hold us down but not the Son of God. Jesus conquered death. He victored over death. And now, here's what's interesting. Our death is linked to his death. His death is my death. And you know what else that means? If he died, I don't need to die. And what else is cool is that if Jesus raised from the dead, which he did, we too will live again. We too will live forevermore. If Jesus conquered death and we're linked to Jesus, my death has already occurred and I will live forevermore. Thanks be to God for victory that we have over sin and death because it's all to his credit and glory. Number three, quickly. Are you living for him? Paul says, and he died for all that those who live, listen to it, those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Hopefully we've been compelled by the love of Christ once again. Hopefully we understood that we have died and we have found new life in Jesus by faith. Now the question is, now that we are alive again, what what should we do? We're alive. What should we do? We have a new lease on life. We are free from the bondage of sin and death. Satan can't control us anymore. Death can't taunt us anymore. We are alive forevermore. We've been liberated. We are freed people. What should we do with this newfound life that we have? We found a cure for death. Can you imagine if the world understood that? If the world understood there was a cure for death, what a tremendous hope and treasure that is. Can you imagine what the world would do if they really understood that? There was a cure for death. We have this cure. We have this newfound life. And so what should we do with this newfound life? We have a few options, right? Number one, we could travel. We could travel. We could see the world. I mean, we don't have to worry about death any longer. I'm alive forevermore. What should I do with this newfound life? Maybe I'll travel. Maybe I'll go see the world, see what all the world has to offer. I'll see everything. I mean, even COVID-19 shouldn't scare those who have life forevermore, right? I'll go see everything. If I can get on a plane today... I'll go see what this world has to offer me. I'll take pictures of everything. I'll explore every nook, every cranny. I'll see whatever the world has as long as I still have time on this earth because I have newfound life. I should travel and see everything. That's an option. How about number two? Perhaps we'll check every item off our bucket list. Okay, We'll make the best thrills and the best memories out of this life. 
every thrill we can find, every memory we can make. I mean, life has more joy to offer us than we have right now, right? Let's go get as much as we can. We have eternal hope. We have the big thing. Now let's go get as much temporary joy as we possibly can. We'll soak up the sun. We'll see what joy we can really get out of this earth. We'll make memories. We'll make thrills. We'll get as much joy as we can out of this place. It's another option. Number three, perhaps we'll strive for greatness. Okay, we'll scale the tallest mountains of life. We'll climb the highest ladders of ambition. We can't be held down anymore, guys. There's nothing suppressing us any longer. Why not fly to the highest of heights and gain all the success and greatness that we can? I mean, we should have the most confidence out of anybody in the world, right? Because we are alive forevermore. We're immortal. We are literally immortal. We will not die. When we die from this earth, we'll simply wake up in a new life and we'll live forevermore. So we'll have extreme confidence to accomplish anything that this world can give us. We'll strive for greatness. How about this? We'll, we'll learn great things. We'll become the wisest people on the earth. We'll gain wisdom. We'll turn over every stone and every leaf and we'll become wiser than anyone that's ever lived before. We have nothing to worry about anymore. Let's learn. Let's become wise. Let's become great. We have no cares anymore. We can give ourselves fully to anything we want to. I mean, think about that. What would you do if you could do anything with no fear of death? Would you travel? Would you make memories? Would you strive for greatness? Would you gain wisdom as much as you can? You see, but there's another option out there. There's one more option out there. See, all these options that we mentioned have to do with one thing. Living for ourselves. That's what those all mean. Travel. It's all about me. Make memories. Strive for greatness. Gain wisdom. It's all about living for me. What can I get? What can I have? But here's the interesting thing about this world about this Christianity, about this Bible that we're reading right now. There's one greater than us. There's one greater than you and I. He's greater than us, okay? The one who died for me is pretty special, is he not? He's pretty special. We just talked about how special he is. I have been compelled by the love he has for me. It's a deep, immense, broad, unsearchable love. I've been compelled by that love. Have you? I have conquered death by his death and his resurrection for me, which means I'm immortal. Are you? And the one who died for me is my Savior. He's my Redeemer. He's my Jesus. And he is the Lord of all creation. The Lord and the King of this world, the Lord and the King of the eternal kingdom, which will live on and on and on, is my Savior. Living to travel or to make memories or to attain success and to gain wisdom doesn't make the most sense when the one who died for me and created me has a purpose for me. And perhaps if we find out what that purpose is, we will be more fulfilled than we could ever be from this earth. I mean, I wouldn't have any life, neither would you, without him. I don't have any hope. I don't have any hope beyond this grave, beyond this world. I don't have hope for tomorrow. I don't have life beyond the grave without him. Would you? Perhaps there's no greater purpose than to live the rest of my life for him. For him. What if I lived out the rest of my days to please him? What if I did? 
What if I made his will and his desires my chief ambition in this life? Guys, memories are going to fade. You know that, right? Memories will fade. Worldly wisdom will fade. Success will fade and earthly joy is going to fade. But my Lord and your King will reign forever. Forever. There will never be a time, there will never be a day that he doesn't reign. The greatest use of our time is not best served anything the world can offer. The old me would have thought that. The old me would have thought, live for myself, get as much pleasure and success and wisdom and joy that you can from this earth. And now that I know what scripture says, that's how a dead person thinks. A dead person thinks like that. Dead people make poor decisions. But there's an eternal kingdom with an eternal king, and that king just happens to be the one who died for me. Now that I've had time to consider it, it seems quite obvious. And it did to Paul as well. The only purpose to live for, now that I'm alive forevermore, is to live for the one who made it all a reality. Every single person who has been touched by the great love of Jesus Christ should be compelled by his enormous love to love him in return. He sacrificed his life unto death. He died for us. The least we can do and the greatest offer of thanksgiving we can give him is to live for him. The question for all of us today is, is Jesus worthy of your entire life? Is Jesus worthy of your entire life? I mean, does that seem like a big sacrifice to give him your entire life? Does that seem like a big sacrifice to give Jesus your entire life? I mean, he became a man for you. He came to earth for you. He gave up everything in heaven for you. You were headed to a godless hell. He hung on a cross. He raised three days after that. He gave you eternal life. Does it seem too big of a sacrifice to give him your entire life? Or does it seem obvious? To the Apostle Paul, it seemed obvious. Obvious. It didn't seem like a chore. It didn't seem like a great sacrifice. He looked at this immense love Jesus had for him and he said, My life is his. My days are his. My will is his will. My purpose is his purpose. Whatever he wants, that's what I will do. It's obvious. If he loved me that much, if he saved me from that much, my life is his. Paul's saying to us today, it should be obvious. It should be a no-brainer. To live your life for him and no longer live it for yourself. Guys, if you don't know this Jesus today, if you haven't experienced his love firsthand, if you haven't been freed from the chains of sin and death, that's your top priority today, okay? You don't have a priority beyond that. Dinner doesn't matter. Your afternoon doesn't matter. Your night chores doesn't matter. Hanging out with family doesn't matter. If you don't know the great love of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers, that is your top priority today. Come speak to, Pas- Come speak to Pastor Mel or myself, and we will sit down with you. We will tell you about how you can know that hope. That's your top priority. If you have been saved, if you have been freed from your sins and the eternal death that those sins were warranting, then you have a choice to make. You can soak up this life. You can get as much joy as you want out of this life. You can get all your pleasures, all your dreams, all your wishes fulfilled. But that's how a spiritually dead person thinks. Or, 
you could do the only thing that should make sense, to live your life for the one who spilled his blood so you might live forever. That's what Paul is saying. This is a simple text. It's a simple, straightforward equation, but it's powerful, is it not? It's powerful. Listen to it once again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Have you been compelled by the great love Jesus has for you? Will you give your entire life to pleasing him? Or as I taught my children, Tad, and do you remember the old saying I taught you? Jesus. Can you say it really loud? Jesus died for us so we could live for him. Let's pray. Father and Lord, I don't know how to say thank you for what you've done. I took it for granted. I grew up knowing this, but for some reason I, did, I wasn't compelled by it because I didn't search it out. But I thank you today for what you've done in my soul. I'm not here today. I'm not a pastor today. I don't have any hope today without your great sacrifice without that immense love, that love that I can't search, the love that I can't fully know touches me every single day, and I know it touches those who are here. And now we have a choice. We have a choice to either live for ourselves once again and get as much as we can out of this world and get likes and praises and joy and success and wisdom and have everyone think highly of us, or we can say, no, that's not what's best. That's not what's obvious. That's not what an alive person thinks. A person who's alive looks at their Redeemer and Savior and says, His life is my life, therefore my life is now His life. Help us today, Father. Help us, Jesus, to make the obvious decision. Touch the souls who are in this room. And as we partake of communion, help us to glorify you for this great offering of sacrifice you've given us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.